Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast about soundtracks, music, and movies. Each episode features a guest and focuses on a specific soundtrack and the personal stories connected to it. Now here's your host, Ryan Pack. Welcome to Soundtrack Your Life, a podcast where we talk about soundtracks and our personal connections to them. So we have a returning guest. He was on a few episodes back in season one. He's also a bandmate of mine. He puts together the playlist for the website at www.soundtrackyourlife.net. Welcome back to the show, Damon Gross. Hey, Ryan. So, Damon, today we're going to talk about the 2001 Richard Kelly film, Donnie Darko. Uh, Why are we talking about Donnie Darko today? That's a great film. I love that movie. (laughs) I felt like uh, Donnie Darko and its music... There's like a a special a special place in time that I think that uh, that the Donnie Dargo and the Donnie Dargo soundtrack exists for me. There's some cool music in this movie, and I thought it would be fun to talk about it. So Damon, uh, Donnie Darko is obviously kind of this cult film now. Um, so did you? So when did you hear about Donnie Darko? Did you hear about it when it first came out, or kind of? on like the the second wave where it became kind of a cult classic um, when it was re-released on like DVD. I was thinking back on that and I know I did see it in its original theatric release sometime. Uh, it must have been maybe in late 2001 early 2002 i was living in los angeles at the time i did see it in in uh on video later as well um it's all it's all kind of a blur really but um i know uh (laughs) that 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 yeah 2001 was a was a crazy year you know i was thinking about this Donnie Darko. So Donnie Darko came out 19 years ago. It's set in 1988. And so at the time it came out, it was like set 12 years in the past ish, you know, 12, 13 years. And now, I mean, like 19 years ago, um, I don't know. um, I mean, have you seen the movie lately? I I think it's aged pretty well. I wouldn't, to me, it doesn't look, look to be uh, 20 years, 20 years out. Um, I, I think when I saw it, it was probably like 2007, 2008. Um, Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it since then. Um, But yeah, it, you know, in 2008, I wasn't like, oh, this looks like, you know, it's aged terribly from 2001. So, I, so you know, so I think, because I saw it so late, I think I'm pretty sure I saw the director's cut. So, um, I find it fascinating that you actually saw the original version in theaters. Like, I feel like there, you're, you may be the only person I've met who's seen the original Donnie Darko when it came out um, in its original run. Oh wow! Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I used to go to movies back then. I was thinking back around this time, and I was looking back at the other movies that came out that year, and I'm like, Hedwig and the Angry Inch. I saw that in the theater. 
uh, you know, just uh, it seemed like I was going to the movies a lot in L.A. at that time. I really wish I could remember where I, I wanted to remember where I saw the movie. I would go to the Vista. I know I saw Harry Potter at the Vista in Los Angeles that year as well. But so like it was this funny thing. The Vista would have Vista. It's on Sunset. It used to be a there used to be a blockbuster video across the street from it. It's on like Sunset in Vermont. It's still there, I believe. But uh, I would go there, or there was another video. There was another theater in somewhere in West Hollywood that I think there was like a Virgin Megastore directly uh, adjacent to it. And I, I, it might have been there. I saw Ghost World that year too. And Henry Gibson was in line uh, famously from uh, um, Laugh-In and Magnolia. I think he was in line with me. I, it was either, I mean, it could have been Donnie Darko that he was in line with me uh, for if we if I did see it there. But uh, I know it was that year. It was one of those movies. So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> Just, uh, you know, the, that was an interesting celebrity sighting. Yeah, the, 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 the film soundtrack re- does resonate with me. It still does. The movie set in 1988, it doesn't make me feel a particular uh, uh, sentimentality or nostalgia for the 1988 that I lived in. Uh, I mean... Uh, Donnie Darko is set in, I think, somewhere on the East Coast, but it's all shot in L.A. I was living in the desert at the time in 1988. I, the, I, I, I went to a public school. He goes to a private school. Anyway, nevertheless, I feel that the use of the music in the film effectively pulls you into the past in a way that not a lot of not a lot of films are are able to do uh, with pop music it's just a good use of sound and 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 vision to me so i see one of the songs that you were a big fan of from the soundtrack is echo and the Bunnymen. is echo and the bunnyman's the killing moon uh, which was also famously covered by pavement a few years before the movie came out so if you saw the director's cut, then you would have seen you wouldn't have seen or heard the Killing Moon in in Donnie Darko. What did they they? So I think in the director's cut, um, the first song first song you hear in the movie, uh, the original release, is um, the Killing Moon, as you mentioned, but. Um, I think that the director wanted a different song and for licensing issues, he couldn't get it. So for the director's cut, he, he put in a different song. Do you know what it was? Uh, Never Tear Us Apart by In Excess. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, that, that fits, that fits for 1988, I guess. The Killing Moon later replaces (laughs) under the Milky Way during the party scene, says Wikipedia. Okay, so they do end up using it um, either way. They use that song. Okay, under the Milky Way. So I can picture Donnie Darko and um, 
well, I don't remember the character's name, so I'll say that um, Jake Gyllenhaal plays Donnie Darko, and uh, Jenna Malone are descending a staircase during his sister's uh, party, and um, you hear Under the Milky Way by the church, I think during that scene. Mm-hmm. Yes. So that is the Killing Moon <laughs> instead. So they play the, the Killing Moon there. I've got to see the director's yeah. cut and see how that feels for that scene. And the Killing Moon is a 1984 song. Yeah. So I feel like the Killing Moon, like the the music, a lot of the music in the movie feels like, I mean, the movie's called Donnie Darko, not, I don't know what his older sister. So I found that interesting, you know, uh, the older sister in the movie, if you haven't seen it, listeners out there, is played by real life older sister um, Maggie Gyllenhaal. And I feel like a lot of the music in the film seems to be like what maybe his sister would have been into a couple of years before. So the movie set in 1988 and we're hearing like the church and Tears for Fears, Duran Duran, Echo and the Bunnymen, stuff like that. Kind of feels to me like um, it might have been his sister's music, not his, but I mean... Yeah, Tears for Fears were happening. But for me in 1988, if you're going to make a film about 1988, you, I, I'd be putting in some George Michael, some Guns N' Roses, maybe something like that. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it, like, I don't think that George Michael and Guns N' Roses really would have fit the tone of the Donnie Darko movie. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, no. There's, there's. I think it's a good melancholy synth pop kind of not i mean synth pop sounds like i'm belittling the career of echo and the bunny men but uh <laughs> that kind of that kind of melancholy synth pop kind of fits the fits the tone fits the tone of the movie fits fits the proto fits the proto emo of donnie darko and his is mental instability, I suppose. Uh, it's kind of funny. Um, so when I heard the pavement cover of The Killing Moon, which I think was on like 97, 98 or something like that. So I bought a Echo and the Bunny Men like best of album that had The Killing Moon on it. Yeah. And I remember just being like so weirded out by Echo and the Bunny Men. Um, I didn't realize they were such a different band before, like they started getting like super new wavy with like lips like sugar. Because I'd be like, oh, I like that lips like sugar song, and this pavement version of Killing Moon is great, so I should really dive into Echo and the Bunny Men. And I think in the mid '90s they were trying to do like a career resurgence. And uh, yeah, that best of. Um, for one, the original version of The Killing Moon is pretty different than the pavement version. Like, melody-wise, it's the same, but they have, like, those weird strings. Oh, yeah. I had the 12-inch of that. I remember. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm certain I had it sometime in between hearing the pavement version. The first time I heard the pavement version... I saw I saw them at the Glass House in Pomona. Saw Pavement, not um, 
I go in the bunny man. <laughs> I saw Pavement in a Glass House in Pomona, and they played it. I qu- didn't quite recognize it. I had intentionally avoided um, bands like Echo and the Bunnymen for most of the 90s due to my idea of kind of not thinking that, you know, synthesizers and stuff like that was cool. So um, I avoided <laughs> I, I avoided a lot of music like that, including The Cure and, and everything else until uh, a, a few years later. But I saw I saw them play, and at some point I did acquire the twelve inch of the Killing Moon. I think I think on the B side, it's it's I think there it's like a fifteen minute version or something like that. Oh yeah, I saw that it was like some alternate version. I forget what they called it. It was kind of funny. So I don't recall like I don't the the version that's in the that's in the um so the the version it's they the use all in night Darko. version. All night version. That's the one. Yes. And it's nine minutes and 11 seconds. Okay. Yeah. Maybe 15 minutes is exaggerating, but I knew it was long for, I knew it was a long one. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember. I I picked that up somewhere at a, you know, at a thrift store or something. I would have picked it up because I knew it was the pavement covered it. I wouldn't have picked it up intentionally uh, uh, for Echo and the Bunny Men. I came around on them a little bit later, but I think at a certain, it probably came around, came around on Echo and the Bunny Men around the same time that a lot of other music like that was being being rediscovered or re reevaluated and appreciated uh, again anew in um, the early two thousands with uh, bands like Echo and the Bunny Men and. All the, you know, the, I think what people might call C86 bands, uh, you know, all the, all that proto indie, indie stuff from the UK. Looks like sugar. That's, that's Echo and the Bunny Men. I never knew that. Yeah. And bring on the dancing horses. I don't know what that is. Oh, I like that song. Okay. Uh, How but about did you the know Cutter? The... I don't know the cutter. Yeah, the cutter. That one, I know. I made lyrical reference to the cutter in a song of mine once, literally using the word "cutter." Come came from coming coming directly from the Echo and the Bunnymen song. I I think Echo and the Bunnymen is another one where like all I really knew about them in the '90s before the pavement cover was what i read about them probably in the in the michael azarad nirvana book talks about um courtney love uh and her early days going to england and hanging out with those guys trying to be a part of that scene it's funny that you bring that up because i think on that celebrity skin album i think she talks about how Echo and the Bunnymen influenced her songwriting on that album. And I definitely hear it in that song, Malibu. Mm. Hmm. Not that I'm a huge Hole fan or expert on their music, but it seemed like there was a little bit of an Echo and the Bunnymen direction on that song. Hmm. Okay. 
Did you know the chords of the song for Killing Moon were based on David Bowie's Space Odyssey, but played backwards? I did not know that. Yeah, I think in, probably in 2001 with, uh, I, I, I was definitely way, way big into David Bowie at that time. I guess more so than, more so than, um, than Echo and the Bunnymen or any of the other music on the Donnie Darko soundtrack. So I think that like, this is like Donnie Darko is a good point for me where like maybe some of my tasted music began to change. That's a good point for, I think a lot of people's music were, was starting to change a little bit as well. Yeah. I think it reintroduced the eighties as kind of not this, you know, campy, super glammy sort of um, style of music. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess, I guess, with Tears for Fears and in, in Excess, there's still a little bit of that kind of glammy pop. Yeah. Um, but you know, obviously with like Joy Division and stuff. So like, there's a Tears for Fears cover that kind of became like a minor hit in the states, but actually gained a lot of traction in the UK. Um, a cover of the Tears for Fears 1982 song Mad World. Oh yeah. And that is, so I, I, I remember hearing the song and I remember like seeing the credits like here and there. Like, I don't know if it was like, I was listening to like satellite radio one day and I saw Mad World by Gary Jules and Michael Andrews. And I guess because they sound like super generic names, I never really looked up who, Michael Andrews was before we decided to sit down for this podcast. And Michael Andrews is actually, or Michael Andrews was actually part of a band uh, in San Diego called the Grey Boy All-Stars. So when I was in like middle school and high school, I would always see the Grey Boy All-Stars playing like these local showcases with other bands. And I never really um, searched out to find their music, but like, you know, they were, they were always around in the local scene, you know, like when I would read magazines and stuff. Um, so it it was very surprising to me to see anyone from that band, you know, kind of move into, I guess, a film composer role. So, like, I don't think I've thought about the Grey Boy All-Star since, like, 1998. And, and back then, he actually went under the name Elgin Park. Hmm. So... <laughs> Like, I think if I saw that Elgin Park was part of the um, Donnie Darko soundtrack, I would be like, that name's familiar, but, like, Michael Andrews is just, like, just another guy. Oh, yeah. You don't really... That doesn't... That wouldn't register for me. <laughs> two, uh, some guy with two first names that are pretty basic, yeah. But uh, Elgin Park, yeah, that, that, that one might ring a bell. So what does... What's what's the band called again? Grey Boy All Stars. Grey Boy All Stars. I'm picturing a uh, pop punk kind of thing. You know, like um, like on Ill Communication when the BC Boys would kind of like do these like little funk instrumentals. Oh yeah. I kind of feel like the Grey Boy All Stars kind of made music like that, but like with mm. the horn section. Okay. Huh. But that's only from like five songs on Spotify. As yeah, my, as my research. <laughs> okay, 
Yeah, I've never heard of them, but yeah, I I was trying to think of like what it might be at the time, like post or like a post Sublime song that was like the Long Beach Dub All Stars, Long Beach Dub All Stars. That's what it makes me think of as well. Yeah, like it kind of sounds like it would fit in with like that ska punk scene of San Diego in the mid nineties, but uh-huh. I remember like. They weren't just like another punk band. They weren't just like a second-rate Blink-182. Mm-hmm. But like I never knew enough about them to be able to say what they were. Mm-hmm. I just knew there was like the punk and ska scene, and then there were like more interesting bands in that local scene. And I think I mentally knew that like Grey Boy All-Stars were in the more interesting section, but I just never really went out to buy any of their records. Well, with that cover of Mad World, and I think just then using this this music from the 80s, unironically, except for maybe one use of music from the 80s in the, in the film, and that's for um, the uh, Sparkle Motion dance troupe. Don't want to give away too much about the movie if, if the listeners haven't seen it. But uh, aside from maybe one ironic use of 1980s music, I mean, with the cover of Mad World and these other songs, I think that it was a um, maybe a refreshing kind of new way and or, or uh, um, looking back on the 80s in a in a different way. I know that and I think that, that was part of my aversion to Echo and the Bunnymen and maybe anything else was that a good deal of the the music I listened to when I was really starting to find my own music in the late 80s and early 90s was a lot of music that was turning its back on pop, you know, in general from the from from that from that time, you know, the one of the first bands I got into in a, uh, became a super fan of uh, was like was Nirvana, and I feel like that you know just kept kept me from really listening to a lot of music until I got older. I I I don't think that I would give uh, give certain things a chance because I knew it was from a time or a place that just was just not not cool to me (laughs) so i think that by 2001 i was willing to like listen to hear duran duran and other things like that with fresh ears and like i said before it was a little nostalgic for me even though it wasn't the music that i was listening to per se in the 80s but yeah it was a good time it was a it's a good time to uh give things a a re-listen. I think that, you know, people are probably listening to bands from, you know, the last 15 or 20 years with new with new ears now, maybe. I don't know. Um, I think a little bit. I I can see that. Yeah, I I think I had a similar experience, I think, you know, like a band like New Order um, I think, I think I got the wrong impression of them because I would hear songs like Blue Monday and I would just not, you know, I just assumed that they were kind of cheesy and, you know, because I didn't take New Order seriously, I didn't get into 
Joy Division until later. And, I, you know, and I think you brought up, you know, Duran Duran, right? I only knew, I only knew like Rio and songs mm-hmm. like that. Um, yeah, it's kind of like songs that, like that that you would think of as like definitely a joke of some kind. Like later, it's not to be taken. I mean, not that you, the, not that all music needs to be taken like seriously, but like when you hear like a song like Mad World being covered in maybe a little more serious of a way than it was even done in the first place you're kind of forced to 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 reevaluate things like that but it's not exactly you know uh, a piano version of rio i don't know how seriously i take that yeah like i you know mad world is such a different i mean i know it's 1980 it's a 1982 song but mad world is such like a huge different like it's such a different song than like the tears for fears that I think you would hear on the radio now. Like if they did like a throwback weekend or mm-hmm. a flashback weekend or whatever they call it, you know, it'd be like shout mm-hmm. and head over heels and yeah. Um, you know, everyone wants to rule the world, like kind mm-hmm. of more fluff songs than, than mad world, which is, you know, a very yeah. dark and depressing song. Yeah, I think I mean I I may have heard it, but I but I listened to the original version in the last couple of days, and so yeah, it's good. I like it. Good video <laughs> as well. I don't think if, I've uh, gone back to see the video, but if you've seen, if you haven't seen it, but yeah, you know, I think that they they I think that um, Donnie Darko and the soundtrack kind of started. Uh, it was either I don't know if it was the zeitgeist or if it was, uh, or if or it set the stage or it was the beginning of a trend of reevaluating music from the late seventies, early mid eighties, like that. Obviously, uh, the the champions of which would be Joy Division and then and then New Order. So much that, uh, I Sofia Coppola was using these bands. I know uh, they just these bands started to creep into into other movies. I mean, I mean, not to say that Donnie Darko, it's all because of Donnie Darko, but and maybe it's just like after a certain amount of time, it's, you know, maybe 20 or 30 years out. It's when you start to just stuff starts to just seem fresh again. I don't know. But um, I remember Ceremony. I don't know if you talked about this, but I think they used Ceremony on the for the trailer for The Life Aquatic. Did they? Yeah, I believe Ceremony is in the trailer of Life Aquatic, but um, definitely does not appear in the film. But I wonder if that's sort of like a... It just seemed like I it totally became... I totally don't remember that. Let me, I'm I'm almost certain that's true. Like, I remember Starman being in the trailer. Like, So George's version of Starman. They had the Mark Mothersbaugh song that Bill Murray said that is playing in his head. The little Casio synth song. Let's see. Um... Yeah, yeah, I see. Well, I don't know if it's on. I don't. 
know if it's on um I'm I see reference to it somewhere. But I can't find I can't find video proof. Maybe it's on the Blu-ray. But I see um uh life aquatic there's uh the missing there's an article from like 2007 the missing music of wes anderson the life aquatic something about um using um new order ceremony in the trailer i was chasing that song for a while too i i I think that I, i i i i I, I remember, I think that that song was used in, I want to say it was used in the uh, Sofia Coppola m- movie, um, Lost in Translation, as well, to the best of my recollection, but I don't remember if it really was. No, it was in Marie Antoinette, yeah, not not Lost in Translation, yeah. Yeah, Lost in Translation was pretty much all Kevin Shields. Right, right. And uh, then the Peaches uh, song. Right, but they used uh, Jesus and Mary Chain. Oh, right. I, be- right. I think in um, in Lost in Translation too. In the first decade of the two thousands, their movies movies started to to let the eighties back into their soundtracks. At least the the cool directors and the cool music supervisors were were hip to that. And you've got, you had, you know, I mean the, the, well, and you mentioned peaches, right? Yeah. And peaches and, um, you know, Fisher Spooner and Electro Clash and all of those things go along with that, I'd say. And, um, for me, like my, one of my favorite albums from that time was Interpol's first album that came out in 2002, which might kind of fall into a similar place tone wise i'd say as maybe or at least maybe they would hope that it would fall someplace similar uh that uh, something that maybe joy division would do or might feel that way you know jake gyllenhaal is the star of the film and i always have to bring up how you know basically he he started off as Bubble Boy. That was like one of his first big roles. Bubble Boy. You know, I remember Bubble Boy. What's a Bubble Boy? The boy in the bubble. I think I thought that was uh, John Travolta. Was that? I, I thought he was in Bubble Boy. <laughs> What's I, Bubble I, like, Boy? I, it was um, a critically panned movie. About a boy who lives in a bubble, but um, <laughs> this was also in 2001. So the, actually, Jake Gyllenhaal. Sorry. Go on. Oh, Jake. So Jake Gyllenhaal um, had done some movies previously. Like I think he's in October Sky, and but I think this was like his first starring role, and it was basically this joke of a movie. Where he's the bubble boy, and uh, <laughs> I can't believe that that came out in the same year as um, Donnie Darko. Bubble boy, the 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 Wayne Cone, the Wayne Coin story. Did you know that he was Jake in City Gyllenhaal. Slickers? No. Apparently, he was Danny Robbins in City Slickers. I never saw or heard of him before Donnie Darko. That's for sure. 
I don't read. Yeah, I don't remember like I don't him. think he had any major roles. Like, I don't know. Like he was an October Sky, and um, I think Donnie Dar- Donnie Darko and Bubble Boy were like his first, I think, real <laughs> starring roles. And Bubble Boy is, I guess, a five point six on IMDb. I thought it'd be lower, but um, <laughs> the trailer or the uh, poster for Bubble Boy says a journey of like twenty seven hundred miles begins with a single bounce, and it shows him in a bubble. Was it a comedy? Ah, oh, it's supposed to be a very silly comedy, at least okay. according to the the poster. The uh, mm. synopsis is: Bubble Boy's been in a bubble all his life due to no immune system. A cute blonde girl befriends Bubble Boy. Her boyfriend proposes, and Bubble Boy decides to travel across the United States to Niagara Falls to stop her th- stop the wedding. So I can't see that being particularly dramatic. Odd. Maybe I'll check it out. But that came out in the same year, Donnie Darko. I felt I felt like it came out way before, but it's kind Never of insane of that yeah, it's in it's kind of crazy to me that he did what might be considered like a one of the most awful movies in his filmography and one of the best movies in his filmography in the same year. Okay. So that that was a touchstone picture. I, I just I just love to see when things are touchstone pictures. <laughs> Touchstones pictures proudly presents Bubble Boy. Yeah, I just remember it being like Bubble. a total Dustin Hoffman, Susan Sarandon. Wow. Oh no, oh no, that's a different movie. <laughs> yeah, I was like they were not following Bubble Boy. I'm I'm I, I I skipped ahead and then I skipped back. Oh, so he he could have been Spider Man. I could see that. I could have seen him as Spider-Man. He, uh, J- um, Jake Gyllenhaal was, uh, he could have been Spider-Man. I heard that. Now, he, um, now he's just a Spider-Man bad guy. Yeah, he was, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah he was. One. That was good. That, was, that wasn't bad. I, I, I read somewhere that um, they were considering Jason, Jason Schwartzman for uh, Donnie Darko. <laughs> I, I I read that he was supposed to be Donnie Darko But he had a scheduling conflict I wonder what that scheduling conflict was I heart Huckabees or something Possibly Maybe he had a Phantom Planet reunion tour Lined up and he Nah he doesn't do this He couldn't do that <laughs> nah, I'm, I'm probably sure it was I'm pretty sure it was probably Wes Anderson related Yeah that's a possibility yeah. Oh, yeah. Then and I, another another good one from two thousand and one with a fantastic soundtrack. The Royal Tenenbaums, I think, came out that year as well. No, Tenenbaums had to be like two thousand. Was it two thousand one? Why did everything come out in two thousand one? That's the last time I went to the movies. That's why. <laughs> no, that was two thousand one. I. For some reason, I felt like it was like 2003 or something. I'm thinking like if I saw it in the theater, it was 2001. I, I do know, I, and I would mention it before, I used to go to this weird theater. I don't even think it's probably there anymore. But I'm thinking, why did I go? Why did I have to go all the way out to this theater? I lived in Echo Park. I had to go all the way out to this theater in like West Hollywood or, or, or somewhere. And then I remembered that... Um, that those were the days before the arc light or the Cinerama dome had been 
um, reopened. And so as soon as that happened, you could go to the movies again without having to go all the way down there. But yeah, I saw every movie that year. I think that <laughs> that was that was the year I went to the movies for sure. Yeah, uh, you know, I feel like Jake Gyllenhaal, although he, as far as I know, he never had a career in music. He was definitely his look and Donnie Darko, particularly during the party his, uh, toward the end of the film, uh, became kind of uh, kind of the, the look of that product of the time that may or may not exist anymore, but the emo guy. <laughs> so the emo guy look, I feel like, came came from uh Donnie Darko in that in that party scene with the you know well when Donnie Darko was gonna get up to no good you know he would flip up his hood like he was gonna do something so he had the hoodie he had kind of like the the, you know the the bangs cut a little bit not quite the Spock rock cut but very very close and the uh just the just the overall dark mood vibe that uh, I feel like was uh, inspiring to many an emo dude of the early 2000s. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's interesting how emo fashion and kind of emo music evolved from like the mid to late 90s to the early 2000s and beyond. Because I remember like emo music in like 97 was like it kind of sounded like pop punk but like they would like slow things down in the bridge and mm-hmm. people who listened to emo music were like kind of preppy dressed you know because they weren't like the pop punk meatheads mm-hmm. maybe this is just san diego because blink 182 was blown up at the time but <laughs> I mean, that was my thoughts of emo was like bands like the Get Up Kids and the Promise Ring. And sure. then like yeah. around the 2000, 2001, like emo became like much more um, brooding and a lot more screaming. Oh, yeah. Like, you know, maybe I'm thinking you, of the screamo, maybe more of the, uh, yeah, the post emo stuff. Like, like but when, but like the, when everyone thinks about emo, they think about like the kind of brooding sort of, I guess you would say Jake Gyllenhaal and Donnie Darko or, or Tobey Maguire in Spider-Man three sort of look. Yeah, for sure. And and then as it became more screamo, then like, then they started adding like mascara and stuff. Yeah. Then, then you throw, um, you throw a uh, Jordan Catalano into the mix. Right. Then, you, then, then it's a whole nother thing. Yeah, emo to me was like I don't know, maybe like Fugazi or something in the in the early two thousands. If you might catch somebody using that term, and then I thought that like somebody that was like really like 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 content wise that was like really an emo guy would have been like to me Lou Barlow from Sebado would be like emo like emotional like uh, what i thought like it meant like emotion like it was short for emotional hardcore 
So it would have come from like the hardcore scene of the eighties, but then with like, you know, the kind of, uh, lyrical content that you might hear from like a Lou Barlow or something like that. Right. Like that was, that's like sunny day real estate. Yeah. That's about right for me. Yeah. But yeah, the get up kids and those other, the promise ring, those, those were, yeah, like more like intelligent pop punk stuff that I think was, was definitely, you know, Converse and sweaters instead of like board shorts and tank tops. Right. Um, so, kind of so music. It's weird to me how, yeah, it's weird to me how like emo fashion kind of moved, you know, like, like everyone just thinks of it as like, you know, kind of the brooding weird haircut and a hoodie when it was much different a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. The, I, I, I gotta say that I think that the hoodies all from Donnie Darko. Oh, I believe that. No. And speaking of Donnie Darko's hoodie, a little aside into the film, maybe not so much about the music, but I feel like this is one of those first, one of the first real, like, I mean, this is a movie set in the 80s, so they got to do a, a couple of nods to some, to some 80s films or some to or something you know not to hit you over the head with it per se but there's a scene in Donnie Darko where you've got four kids on bikes one of them's Donnie Darko with his hood up i can't help but think of ET when i when i see that and it and it does help that Drew Barrymore is in this movie so there's kind of like a kind of an et thing going only maybe if only briefly i mean this film's probably not all too inspired by et <laughs> albeit i feel like maybe the the conversations you know how like spielberg with et would kind of get those conversations going you know around the table and they kind of felt um, genuine, you had like real things going on, kind of like in a, um, there, there was just like the feeling that like he was just capturing something as it was happening. And, uh, I think that I'd like to think that, um, the director here, what's his name? Richard Kelly. Yeah. I think he did a good job with that. I, and it probably helps that the Halls were, were actually siblings. So, it adds a little uh, adds a little realism to that but yeah it's good can we talk about Jenna Malone real quick oh yeah sure all right had have you heard a Jenna Malone of Donnie Darko her her music did she 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 had a it seems like she had a short-lived band or she's she's put out some music here and there over the last uh you know 19 years but uh she had a she had she had she had a band out there in uh in about 2004 are you aware of that one i had no idea oh yeah jenna malone and the bloodstains i know i i i followed her on myspace uh back then i was in a band right at this time and i remember 
hearing that Jenna Malone had a band. Jenna Malone from Donnie Darko and her blood stains. And, uh, you know, it, it's, this is a, this is a hard one. I think that this is self-released stuff. It was on her MySpace page. Probably it only exists in like, uh, MP3 or CDR form. So it's not, it's not on, it's not on your Spotify's or any of that, but it's out there. Uh, indie, indie stuff. If you're, you're able take a listen, I think you can find it on YouTube, but I don't know if most people know that she, uh, she did that stuff. Yeah. I see it on her, um, Wikipedia page and apparently she got reviewed in Pitchfork. Well, and Pitchfork says it's kind it's pretty out there. Okay. I for one don't recall what it sounds like. <laughs> but I know it exists. Yeah, the, and the exact that was quote, the time. I was going to say the uh Pitchfork review says it's the music is pretty out there. Bedroom electronic spaced out keyboards and Malone's spare vocals. Maybe worth worth checking out. Yeah, maybe. So what's your favorite metal band of the 80s? Of the 80s? Of the 1980s. Man, I... I mean, I wasn't really in... I didn't get into metal until much later. So it's hard for me to say I had a favorite 80s metal band because I... It would be, you know, retroactive, but... Okay, so think... during the eighties you weren't you weren't into metal. I don't think that I was either. But is Iron if Maiden I were considered eighties? What is it? Is Iron Maiden considered eighties? Oh yeah. Um I guess I guess it would be them. My ro- my old roommate took me to one of their shows because he had an extra ticket and I had a good time. Well, have you ever heard of the Dead Green Mummies? Um, I have not heard of the Dead Green Mummies. Well, neither have I, but apparently they uh, they provided a song for the Donnie Darko soundtrack called Proud to be Loud. But in fact, <laughs> the dead green mummies don't really exist. They are, it is a fictitious name. The real dead green mummies is uh, a band that some might be familiar with called Pantera. Oh, so Pantera used like a fake... <laughs> band names so pan sounds like pantera uh, wanted to distance themselves from their early stuff um maybe it wasn't too maybe uh, you know it was too glam too hair metal something like that so when it came time when they got the request to add one of their songs to the soundtrack they didn't want their name attached to it so they so they submitted a fake name so no one would know that it was that it was Pantera. So, so thanks, David, for stopping <laughs> by the podcast. Oh, my pleasure, uh, Ryan. Thank you for having me back, and uh, I look forward to more awesome uh, soundtrack your lives for season two. Yeah, you can visit our website at www.soundtrackyourlife.net. You can find playlists based off. Uh, the songs that we talk about or the artists that we talk about in each episode. Damon curates those 
for us. So thank you so much, Damon, and uh, we'll do this again soon. Sounds sounds great. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on Soundtrack Your Life. Make sure to visit our website, soundtrackyourlife.net, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.